0: We've been doing a series on Jesus, and I think I said this right at the beginning and probably said it every night, greatest theme in all the Bible. The theme of Christ and His redemption. And what a wonderful thing it is tonight to be able to look at Jesus again. We saw Him the first night, Jesus the good Son. Second night, Jesus the carpenter. Third night, Jesus the master teacher. Last night we looked at Him as Jesus the great physician. Tonight... We're going to, I switched things around. I was going to do tonight Jesus the Savior, but that's all what my testimony is, which is what I'm going to give tomorrow morning. So tonight I'm going to look at Jesus as the foundation of God's church. You know, there's a song we sing sometimes called, The Church Has One Foundation. What's the rest of it? Jesus Christ the Lord. Think about that. One foundation. Jesus Christ the Lord. Tonight, I want you to see that. But I want to start with a story. A few years ago, my wife and I got a a little thing in the mail, a little brochure in the mail for a a $99 weekend in Sedona, Arizona. And we thought, wow, what, three nights in Sedona, Arizona? Wow, that's a resort area, beautiful resort. So how could you go wrong for $99? That's like... $33.08, Thirty three dollars a Can't beat that at a resort. So I said, okay, let's do it. But there was a little hitch to it. A ninety minute presentation. Now, you know where I'm going with this, right? So we went, we went to this presentation, and, and I said, let's get the presentation over with first so we can enjoy our weekend. Uh, i'm a i 'm a soft touch if you come to me and say, "Oh you know my my kid needs some money to get through school, or oh you know the United Foundation knocks on the door and we 're trying to raise money to help whatever, but if you try to sell me something, good luck and so I sat there in the chair and my wife sat with me and they and then that by the way the ninety minute presentation lasted about two and a half hours, so something didn 't add up there, but anyway. They were trying to. They took us, walked us through, and you know the lazy river and the pools and this and that and free shuttle to this and all you know and you know special discounts on the jeep tours and the horse riding and all the rest of it. And I sat there and I said, I just came for the the cheap weekend. <laughs> and the person trying to sh- sell the timeshare said, Yeah, but don't you like it? Well, yeah, it's nice, but I ain't going to buy anything. And they said, Well. Don't you think it's beautiful? Yeah, it's beautiful, but I'm not going to buy anything. After about four of those, she brought her manager in. And he worked on me for a while. And then he went and called a friend, brought him in. Before you know it, there were three of them in there trying to sell me this timeshare. I said, I'm not going to buy it. Well, why not? I said, well, it's nice and everything, but I'm just not interested. They wanted me to give them an answer. Then they came up with, this is, if you ever go do a timeshare thing, this is their last resort. They pull out a book and said, well, you know, you don't have to come to Sedona every year. You can go anywhere you want in the world for just a $100 change fee. So they hand me this book, and I'm going through it, some beautiful What do you consider the greatest vacation place on earth? Oh, I love Hawaii. I've been there a couple of times. I love Hawaii. Well, Hawaii's in here. Wouldn't you want to buy it just to go to Hawaii? No. (laughs) Whoa. Well, 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 where would you? If you could be any place, what do you consider the greatest place on earth? I bet we have it. And I said, I consider the greatest place on earth the church. Because that's where Jesus is. You know what that time show lady did? She dropped her jaw, and she said, Here's some free coupons, start have a nice day. How do you beat that? What do you consider the greatest place on earth? I'm going to take you to a Bible verse tonight that explains where the greatest place on earth is. You have your Bible look at Mark chapter 2. very first verse, I'm going to tell you this passage is also in Matthew 9, Luke 5, in case you want to do a comparison sometime. But we'll take it from the Luke version. And we're going to read verses 1 to 12. And again, he, who's the he? Jesus, entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together, so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was lying. Or excuse me, where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit, that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk? Notice the next line. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Take, your, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. They were completely amazed. We go back to the first verse, and it says that Jesus was there. He was preaching in this area known as Capernaum. And while he was there, amazing things happened. But I want you to think about this. Tonight, I want you to see the church of God, His church, His remnant church, is still the greatest place on earth to be. Amen? I'm going to share with you five reasons for that. First one is found in verse 1, because Jesus is where? In the house. I love that statement. Now, someone mentioned that the song service leader talked about the town crier. It's interesting, when you look at the words there, where it says, He was... Reported, or it was reported that he was in the house. In the original King James, or I should say in the King James, it says it was noised that he was in the house. And that word, the English word from the Greek, is the same word used that the town criers use. A town crier went out and noised the community. That this is what happened. So and so has been deposed. This is our new king. Our baby is born. These are the same words. They were reporting that Jesus was in the house. And guess what happened to the house? It got overfilled. Because people wanted to be where Jesus was. Amen? The foundation of God's church is where Jesus is. The reason why the best place on earth to be is the church is because that's where Jesus is. Amen? I had an experience some years ago. I remember... My wife, and I, my wife is Cuban. She has a lot of family in Miami. Hurricane Andrew came through and hit Miami. Now, we've had a lot of bad hurricanes since then, Katrina and some of these others that you've heard about. But I want you to think about this. To this day, the NOAA records Hurricane Andrew as the strongest hurricane in history. Hurricane Andrew's sustained winds were 197 miles an hour. And the wind gusts were over 240 miles an hour. Anyone know what the stall speed of a 747 is? You can launch a 747 from the ground with those type of winds. Think about that. A powerful wind. It came through Miami. Fortunately, Miami wasn't someplace in Panama or Costa Rica that didn't have very very well-built buildings. Because it leveled Homestead, most of Homestead. It destroyed many homes, and churches were, were were not exempt. There was a whole area they called Church Road. Every one of those churches were knocked to the ground. It was amazing. We went, took a team of guys down there. My brother-in-law is an excavator, and also he rents heavy equipment. And he took some of his equipment down there to help out with relief efforts. He called me up. He said, Ed, can you get a... A team of church people, maybe some of the academy kids or whatever, come down. I could use just the, the physical labor. Say, so, okay, I'll come and help. We got some young people from Columbia Union College, from Garden State Academy, and we went down there to help. While we were there, I saw something I'll never forget as long as I live. Uh, we're going by, you know, as we're flying over, you know, banking into the to Miami there, we, you could see the devastation from the airplane. But I noticed there was some you know, writings or something. It looked like uh, someone had tagged the houses. Uh, you know, it looked like graffiti. And I'm going, why would someone put graffiti on a house that was level? When it, we got to the ground, I realized what it was. There were numbers. PR, 28, 32, There were insurance numbers. State Farm, SR, State Farm, Prudential, Allstate, whatever. These were insurance numbers of homes that had hurricane insurance. Now, a lot of them had those numbers on it, but many of them didn't. I came across, we were, when we were going through working in these houses, I noticed this little kind of looked like a mound of debris standing and a, a bunch of junk around it. And someone took the spray paint, and instead of putting a an insurance number on it, they sprayed this closet. saved my life. It was interesting. Then a little later on, I saw a house leveled to the ground, and someone took two 2x4s. And a piece of paneling, drove it into the ground and put up a makeshift billboard. And it had these words on it. No Jesus, no peace. Now, since then I've seen this saying. I had this. That was the first time I saw it. They put up another one right behind it that said, K-N-O-W. No Jesus, no peace. Amen? They realized there was no insurance number on that house. They might have lost everything they had. But they knew Jesus, so they had peace. Amen? Friends, if we have Jesus, we can't fail. There is no failing when you're connected to the Master of the Universe. Now, when I joined the Adventist Church, I'm going to share with you my testimony tomorrow. When I joined the Adventist Church, I was kind of a nominal Baptist, but being raised a Baptist, I knew about Jesus. But when I joined the Adventist Church, I never heard Jesus preached like this in my life. I saw Jesus not only as just the Savior, but I saw Him as a, as a coming King in power and glory. I saw Him as the Creator of the universe. Now, the Baptists teach that He's a Creator. They don't spend a whole lot of time on that. Adventists spent a lot of time on it. I saw Him as the high priest in the sanctuary interceding for me. That was such a wonderful, wonderful teaching. That one really touched my heart. To think Jesus is there in my behalf. Wow, it was amazing to know that this church, the Seventh-day Adventist church that I had joined, was a church that believed in Jesus. Amen? Jesus should be first and foremost in everything. I don't care what you're teaching. You could be talking about time. Somehow, Jesus is a part of that. Jesus was the great giver, the one who gave it all. You know, you will be talking about the 2300 days or, or end-time prophecy, whatever it is. Jesus needs to be the center of it. Amen? If He is, we have nothing to fear in any of our preaching. Now, that's the first reason why this is the best place to be in God's house. And this Camp Meeting 10 is God's house tonight. Amen? Because we're two or three are gathered together in my name. What does it say? He's right there in the midst. Praise the Lord. He's here with us. Amen? Do you believe that? I had a friend that would drive around. Here's a coal Porter. How many of you have ever coal Portered? Okay, a few of you. I have coal porter. It is challenging. It's scary sometimes. It's, you wonder if you're going to make it. You wonder if you knock on the door, if someone's going to come out and beat you over the head. I mean, it's a challenging work. I had a friend who was a coal porter. And I would see him. We'd cross paths every once in a while in Atlantic City. This was before I went into ministry. I was a paramedic. And I'd, drive, I'd be driving the, the rig, and I'd cross paths with this guy, and I'd see him driving down the road. just His mouth was going... And this was pre-cell phone. So he wasn't on the phone. So I said, I wonder what he's doing. What is this guy doing anyway? So one day I had to ask him. His name was Marvin. I I, I said, Marvin, you know, I see you occasionally driving down the road and you look like you're out of your mind. I see you talking. Who Who on earth are you talking to? He goes, I'm not talking to anyone on earth. I'm talking to God in heaven. I said, okay, I stand corrected, my brother. You just keep on talking. And we should be connected to Jesus. Just like Marvin was so close that he felt like he was right there with him in the car. Amen? That's the way we should be. And if we're that way, trust me, our churches will be exciting, joyful, happy places. The second thing. Notice in, in uh, let's go back to Mark chapter 2. And look at verse 2 now. <clears throat> Mark chapter 2, verse 2. It says, Alright, well, let's, you know, Let's read verse 1 again. Whoa, what happened here? This is the nice thing about these, this technology stuff. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. This is an iPad. My brother calls it an eye patch. Okay? I said, I'm not a pirate. I do have a beard. But I don't wear an eye patch. I use an iPad. Okay, first 2. Immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. Wouldn't that be nice if we could say that? about all of our churches and branch Sabbath schools and church plants, that there's no room to receive, not even at the door. Well, number one, the main reason is because Jesus was there. But look at number two. And He did what? Preached what? The Word to them. Now, if Jesus Christ, the Savior of the universe, our example was preaching the Word, what should we be doing in church every week? On the midweek meeting, at a Bible study, at a small group, a home study, church service, Sabbath school, we should be preaching the Word. Amen? I've heard some preachers that... I won't mention any names, but I've heard some preachers stand up and just give a whole bunch of, you know, nice generalities about how God loves them and so forth, and never once quote a verse from the Bible. And I'd say... Where does he get his strength from? I wouldn't dare stand in a pulpit without God's Word. Amen? How could he do that? There's no way possible. It doesn't make any sense to me. You know, when I joined this church, like I said, I was pretty impressed with the gospel message, the message of Jesus Christ. But I was also impressed that the Adventists were people who really believed in studying God's Word. You know, I would go to Sabbath school and they'd be studying god's word i'd go to a bible study of a friend's house whatever and they'd be studying god's word when i fell in love with what was to become my future wife it was because she had a friday night bible study in her home for the young people i went to her friday night bible study i found god's word and i found the wife you can't go wrong right What a wonderful, wonderful thing it was. They were studying God's Word, and I preached the gospel all over the world. I've been preached in Mexico and Russia and Cuba. I've even had it, you know, it was mentioned the other day about Egypt. You know what Egypt's going through now? I had an incredible experience in Egypt. We did a short five-day seminar in Egypt. The people we baptized, they had to move out of Egypt because their family would either disown them or they'd be killed. They couldn't even stay in Egypt. Why did those people accept the Lord? Because they heard the Word of God. They heard the Word of God. Most of them were what they call Coptic Christians, but there were there was an Islamic family there as well. We had to get them out. We couldn't keep them there or they would have been killed. Now, they were hoping to come back someday to that country and share the Gospel. When I was preaching in Cuba, I still never forget it. I, we, the opening night of our meetings there in Cuba, I remember we, there was a... They had a building, it was a church, I would say it was probably about, oh, maybe a fourth the size of this tent. Probably maybe halfway through these two middle rows back. That's about how big this church was where we held the meeting. I came in the first night of the meeting, always get there early, I was there at 5 o'clock making sure everything was set up right. You know, back in those days, we used slide projectors. PowerPoint wasn't invented yet. So I made sure my dissolve unit, my slide trays and everything were working right and they were balanced and, and so forth. And sure enough, I'm getting ready to go, getting ready to preach. And I start to go out, and I said, how many people do you expect here tonight? Uh, to, to the head elder. And the head elder said, well, we'll probably have mostly full. How much advertising did you do? Well, we spent $80 on advertising. Now, the only people who are laughing in here have done evangelism. I spend, you know, five $6,000. It's a small meeting. They spent $80 on their advertising. Cuba doesn't have printing presses like we do, or at least they didn't back then. They printed with oil for ink on paper that, I, I tell you today, it looked like cash register tape. And they passed out these little little flyers around the community. So how many did you pass out for that $80? Oh, so we passed out about four or 500 I said, well, let's see, America we get about one or two per thousand on handbills. They pass out 400. We'll get half a person tonight. You know I, I was like, "We're in trouble. We're dead." The place was packed. They opened the windows. People were looking through the windows. They opened up you know, they had a little tiny balcony where they had a sound system. They opened the balcony. People were jam-packing the balcony, standing room only probably four or five hundred people in a place that seated maybe 250 and I looked around and I could not believe it I was impressed and I said you know as an evangelist my first question is how many of these are visitors the head elder said they're all visitors we told the church members to stay home I said are you kidding he said yeah we didn't think they'd fit well he was right they wouldn't have fit in that room I said, have mercy. I said, what did the little tract say that you passed out? Come hear the Bible. That's all it said. There are people in our world thirsting for God's Word. Amen? The second reason why this is still the best place to be is because God's Word is taught here. I remember when I taught at Garden State Academy, I was a Bible teacher slash chaplain slash basketball coach. Slash, you know, if any of you have ever worked in a boarding academy, it's pretty intense. You're working all the time. And I remember my, you know, my life there was crazy. But I enjoyed it. I had a great time being around those young people. And I remember coming to class one day, and I was going to talk that day on Christian ethics. And so I started talking about it. And one of the kids said, you know, Elder Keys, uh, um, Professor so-and-so did, talked about that in, in the... Because uh, this was one of those days I had like, kind of a free day, an extra day. It wasn't part of my lesson plan day. So he said, you know, so-and-so talked about it in the business class. Oh, well, good for him. Okay, well, you know, what haven't we covered? Okay, let's, let's cover that 2,300 days. I thought I got one there. You know, I'm sure they didn't cover that. Oh, the math teacher covered that one. I said, are you kidding Ye you no. Know. <laughs> he covered that i said all right well let's talk about and i went through creation oh no no the science teacher covered that and so and so, so i went down the list and i thought isn't this wonderful our academy our, that are training our young people every single class they're talking about the bible amen i felt so good about that as a young pastor to know that our church believes in god's word. now the third thing go back to the story there and in Mark chapter two, and we'll go from verse three through five. <clears throat> Excuse me. It says then they came to him, bringing a paralytic man who was paralyzed, carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the paralytic or let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Now follow me closely. When Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, son, you're healed. Okay, now you're reading your Bible. What did he say? Son, your sins are forgiven you. Now I want you to think about this? I was a paramedic in Atlantic City. Our medic was call sign was medic six. I get a call, hypothetically now, I get a call. There's been an accident on the Atlantic City Expressway, you know, four four injuries. Well, what's your estimated time? You know, one minute, 30 seconds. We get out to the accident. See a guy laying on the ground bleeding to death. And I come up to him and I say, hey, buddy, your sins are forgiven. Have a good day. And I get back in the ring. You know what he would do? He'd say, I on, my tax money back, okay? Now, enough is enough. Or he might, this is Jersey, might grab a switchblade and throw it at me, all right? You want to know something? When he told this man his sins were forgiven him, that's exactly what he needed. I'm going to share with you. I've been uh, reading Desire of Ages m- almost every night while we were here. One of my favorite book other than the Bible. My second favorite book, Desire of Ages. Here's what it says in Desire of Ages, page two se- 267. <clears throat> like the leper, the paralytic had lost all hope of recovery. We talked about the leper last night. His disease was the result. Now notice this. The result of a life of sin. Okay? And his sufferings were embittered by remorse. He had longed excuse me, he had long before appealed to the Pharisees and the doctors, hoping for relief from mental suffering and physical pain. But they coldly pronounced him incurable and abandoned him to the wrath of God. The Pharisees regarded affliction as an evidence of divine displeasure, and they held themselves aloof. "...from the sick and the needy. And yet often, these very ones who exalted themselves as holy were more guilty than the sufferers they condemned. The palsied man was entirely helpless, and seeing no prospect of aid from any quarter, he had sunk into deep despair. Then he heard of the wonderful works of Jesus. He was told that others, as sinful and helpless as he had been healed. Even lepers had been cleansed. And the friends who reported these things encouraged him to believe that he too might be cured if he could be carried to Jesus. But his hope fell when he remembered how the disease had been brought upon him. He feared that the pure physician would not tolerate his presence. Yet... Listen to this part. Yet it was not physical restoration he desired as much as relief from the burden of sin. If he could see Jesus and receive the assurance of forgiveness and peace with heaven, he would be content to live or die according to God's will. The cry of the dying man was, Oh, that I might come into his presence. Have you ever thought about it? What a beautiful passage. Think about that. All he was interested in was salvation. Yes, he would love to have his legs again and be productive in society. But he came to Jesus saying, I need forgiveness. And when Jesus looked down, he could see it in his eyes. Jesus looked right at him, looked right through him and said, This man, he doesn't need to get up out of his bed. He needs someone to tell him he's forgiven. Son, your sins are. Are forgiven you. Jesus says that to, to us today. All we have to do is say, Lord, I've fallen and he's willing to forgive us immediately. Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven you. Amen? When I was preaching there in Cuba, I'm going to continue this Cuba vein for a second. There was a man who came every night. The first night of the meetings, I saw this guy come in the back room and he looked like an old time mafia guy. I know what mafia guys look like. I'm from Jersey, you know. He came in. And he sat down in the back with this beautiful young lady. You know, she looked like she was probably in her mid-30s, and he looked like he was probably mid-50s maybe. And I'm thinking, well, daughter maybe? You know, who knows? If he's a mobster, maybe wife, girlfriend, who knows? So I see him coming in the back, and then one of the leaders of that church me, calls me aside after the meeting. and said, Pastor, we got a real serious problem. What's that? He said, I don't know if you know it. You saw a guy come in in the back and sit in the back in the back corner. Yeah, I saw him. I noticed. Good, well-dressed. Looked like, you know, Tony or Guido or Vinny, some of the guys I know from Jersey. Yeah, Yeah, he goes, yeah, that's the one. That's the one. I said, okay, so what's the problem? He said, he is a judge. I said, cool. I love having lawyers and judges come to my meetings. He goes, you don't understand this is Cuba. Judges in Cuba are not like judges in America. Judges in Cuba are primarily in position to hold the Communist Party line together. And if they know where Christians are, our people switching from communism to Christianity, he will put them in jail. I said, oh, wow. I said, I remember that story. You remember the story of Noble Alexander? Any of you ever read that story? Put in jail for 20 years for sharing his faith. Incredible! Put him in boxes with snakes, and I mean, just awful how they treat him just because he was a Christian, sharing his faith. Well, this is the kind of man that would have put him behind bars. And so they said, We're, "We don't know what to do, but but maybe uh, maybe we should tell people not to come." What do you think we should do, Pastor? I said, "I'm here to hold an evangelistic meeting." I said, "I don't care if any of the church members come; these are visitors." I said, "Let them come." He said, "We're going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll see what happens." And then I started thinking about, that's a little arrogant. That's American arrogant. arrogant. (laughs) You know, that's the kind of way we are in America. We're tough. We can handle anything. So then I said, you know, his name was Giovanni. Giovanni, I'm really sorry. I said, what do you think we should do? He said, you keep preaching. You keep telling the people about Jesus Christ. That's why they're here. Every night I preached the gospel. The next to the last, made several altar calls throughout the meeting, but the next to the last night of the meetings, I made an altar call. His girlfriend, which I found out later, or I thought it was his girlfriend, it was his wife. His wife came down to the front to make the altar call. I, I asked if anyone wanted to give their life to Jesus and be forgiven and experience a new relationship with him. This woman comes down to the front, you could hear a pin drop. Everyone thought it was a setup, especially the church leaders. Came down, I I took it for what it was. I said, you know, this woman's giving her life to Jesus. My Spanish is kind of weak, you know. I'll make terrible mistakes in Spanish. You know, I'll say something like, I have a monkey in my shirt, and I'm thinking, I'm saying, you know, how are you feeling (laughs) tonight? But, you know, I tried to talk to her in Spanish. I was struggling, so I called the interpreter over. We worked together with this lady, and she sounded very sincere. At the end of that meeting, we were going to have a baptism in two days. I had a Friday night meeting left, and then a baptism on Sabbath. At the end of that meeting, I went and talked to the pastor, his name was Pablo, and Giovanni, the head elder, and a few others, and I said, "I said this lady wants to get baptized, I know she's related to that that guy you're all afraid of, what do you think we should do? I said, Pastor, um, you know, we're going to have a beautiful baptism here, but I'm not sure if we should baptize her, you know, maybe she's just getting baptized so that they could get the names of all the other people who are being baptized. I said, okay, well, you know, I'll take your advice, but... I think she's sincere. I think she's really given her life to Jesus. And you know what they said? Okay, Pastor, we'll baptize her. We had 104 people scheduled to be baptized on Sabbath. She became number 105. And the pastor said, I just have one request of you, Pastor. We'll baptize, you know, we'll get several people, we'll baptize together. But I have one request you baptize her. I scratched my head and I thought about it. Oh, I see why. Just in case somebody, the KGB of Russia, come in here with AK forty seven, they'll shoot at me, not you. He goes, Well, you know, kinda, but I said, I'm a bigger target. I'm 6'5, you're only 5'5. Come on now. He's got more to shoot at. I said, I'll baptize. Sure enough, Friday night came. We did, you know, we we got together, we had a special uh, baptismal class, talked about different things. Sabbath morning came. Have you ever been to a Cuban baptism? most amazing thing in the world. We started baptizing at 9.30. Now think about it. it There's 104 people. I was in the Philippines two years ago. We baptized 232 people in about 25 minutes. We baptized 105 people from 9.30 to 3.30 in the afternoon. Now, here's why. First of all, we were baptizing them two at a time. And every single person that was baptized, they had to have their favorite Bible verse read and a hymn sung. A hundred and five hymns were sang that day. And a hundred and five favorite verses. And some of those favorite verses were like the whole Psalm 91. This was the longest baptism I've ever been involved in in my life. But she was the last one. They decided she was going to be the last one to be baptized. She came in the water. Pastor Pablo stood there. He kind of distanced himself a little bit, not too far. And she came in the water. We put her down in the water, brought her up in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I could hear one person say amen. You know who it was? The judge. Now, I only had one day left in Cuba. I was leaving. On Monday, I had Sunday left. I wanted to know what this man was all about. When that baptism was over, I shot straight over to him. I said, I want to congratulate you. Your wife has made the greatest decision of her life. And he looked me in the eye. He goes, son, I'm a Saul of Tarsus. I said, what? He goes, I know the Bible backwards and forwards. I've read it my whole life. But I've been called by the Communist Party to hold the Communist Party line straight and with an iron hand. He said, but my whole life, I've wanted to give my heart to God. We did not baptize him. I didn't have enough time. But I I knew that there was another guy coming into that, that town to hold evangelistic meetings. You know, about a month later, he was baptized in that series. Amen? When I asked him, what was it? That touched you in this series. He goes, well, I knew about the Sabbath. Makes sense. The Sabbath doesn't take a rocket scientist, he said, using English cliches. Doesn't take a rocket scientist and his English was pretty good. Doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out the seven days still the Sabbath. No, nah, no problem there. State of the dead. Every, I mean, his was the easiest Bible study I've ever seen in my life. He said, but no one's told me how I can be saved. Wow, sometimes we miss it, don't we? Whatever it is you teach, include salvation salvation is the reason one of the the third reason why we're this church is still the greatest place to be now let's go back to the rest of the story mark chapter two and let's finish it off We'll start with uh, verse five again when jesus saw their face, he said to the paralytic son your sins are forgiven you and some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning in their hearts they were thinking why does this man speak blasphemy like this Who can forgive sins but God alone? Were the scribes right? Absolutely they were right. In fact, if you ever have a problem presenting the Godhead, this is a great place to go. Because either Jesus is a blasphemer, or He's God. Amen? And so it says, who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk? Which is easier? The scribes thought it was to say, Your sins are forgiven you. Or or to, you know, to to, to take up your bed and walk. Because they figured, It's blasphemy to say, Your sins are forgiven you. But then Jesus goes on to say, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Can you imagine what that was like? Everyone in that house crowded in there seeing this guy get up and walk out. Everyone was amazed. The fourth reason why this is still the best place on earth to be is because healing still takes place here. Amen? God still wants to heal. Talked a little bit about it last night, but there was something, there was a show, story I was saving just for today. When I was chaplain at Garden State Academy, we had a young guy come to us from South Bronx. Anyone ever been to the Bronx, New York? Well, if you've been to Yankee Stadium, you've been to the Bronx, okay? He came from an area of the Bronx where the police station is known as Fort Apache. Think about this. What, what do people do in a fort? They barricaded themselves in to protect themselves. The police were just there to protect themselves. They weren't there to protect the town. This was a very, very tough, tough neighborhood. Came to Garden State Academy. His mother thought, if I don't get him out of here, she was an evidence. If I don't get him out of here, he's going to get killed. Some gang's going to scoop him up, and he's going to end up dead. Sent him to the academy. A big, tough kid. I'm 65280. This kid made me look small. He was the epitome of Shaquille O'Neal. And sure enough, this big kid walks out. And when we're playing intramural football, kids would bounce off him like flies. It was hard to get this guy down to the ground. Basketball, no one even tried to box him out. They'd okay, go ahead, Ron. <laughs> you get the lane free. You know, he was an amazing gi- giant of a young man, only 17 years old. Sure enough, uh, he was a tough guy, too. He really didn't have a desire to follow the Lord. We brought in a week of prayer speaker. A guy named Dave Livermore. used to pastor in, in uh, Washington. Dave came in, preached. One night, Dave made an altar call. Ron came forward. Gave his heart to Jesus. I was so excited. I said, this is great. Then he wanted Bible study so he could be baptized. So we studied the Bible for probably three or four weeks, and he was baptized at the Tranquility Sunday Adventist Church. Became a part of the New Jersey Conference Church, though, because we didn't, we didn't know exactly where he would end up in church. As it turns out, shortly after his baptism, we're having a bonfire type thing, you know, a campfire, I should say, up on the side of the hill next to the little lake they call uh, Lake Tranquility. And we're up there just having a good time. I'm playing a guitar. We're singing. Principal comes by and he says, Pastor Keys, we need to get these kids back to the dorm. Friday night. It was a Friday night. We need to get these kids back to the dorm so they'll have some energy Sabbath morning. So they'll enjoy themselves for worship on Sabbath morning. I said, these are teenagers. They could stay here all night and walk the church Sabbath morning. They'll still be awake. Teenagers have all kinds of energy. He said, Pastor Keys." I said, okay, okay, okay. So he started to get the kids going. We had a maintenance man who rolled up a pickup truck. You know, he was up there helping get the fire going. Rolls his pickup truck up. And a bunch of the kids jump in the truck bed. His big old... Beat up, F-250, 40. He's driving along, probably 30 kids jammed in the back of this this, uh, truck bed. Ron, his name was Ron Mackey, Ron tries to get up onto the truck and somehow misses, falls, and the truck runs over his leg. Now, that truck, I don't know how much it weighed, plus the 30 kids in the back. Ron, who I never heard make a peep, even you know, when kids would you know, hit him over the head trying to tackle him in a football game, all of a sudden was writhing and screaming in pain. I thought... Oh, my goodness, I come running along. Ron, what happened? Oh, P- Pastor Keys, a truck ran over me. And they stopped the truck. The kids realized it. They all jumped out. Everybody's gathered around. Said, so we got to get him to the hospital. You could see right above the knee where, where, where the uh, tire mark went across his leg. Said, so, oh, my goodness, we got to get him out of here. So sure enough, uh, there was another guy, science teacher. He rolls up with his station wagon, folds the back seats down. We put Ron in the back seat. I crawl in the back seat with him. So said, Ron, it's going to be okay. Don't worry, man, it's going to be okay. So we're on our way to the hospital. Somebody, again, pre-cell phone. It's hard to believe there was a time where there was no cell phones. But anyway, someone runs to a phone and calls the hospital. We have a kid coming in, and just got ran over by a truck. He's in a lot of pain. It was his leg, so it may not be life-threatening, but it's serious. So they call ahead. We're riding, flying down a highway. It's one of those times you wish you got pulled over by a state trooper, but he wasn't around. You know, you want that police escort. But anyway, we're flying down our own. I'm in the back seat with Ron, or I should say the folded down seat in the back. I said, Ron, it's going to be okay. He said, Pastor Keith is killing me. Can you pray for me? I said, sure, Ron. I'll be happy to pray for you. So I lean over and said, dear Lord, put my arm on, him, put my hand on his arm, on his shoulder. Dear Lord, please bless Ron. Help him to feel better. Comfort him. Take away his pain. Amen. Ron looks at me and he says, Pastor Keith, ah, that was a lame prayer. <laughs> what? He said, Pastor Keys, that, that was a, a, a lame prayer. I'm in a lot of pain. I said, well, I asked God to take... Okay, we'll do it again. <laughs> so I put my hands on his shoulder. And this time, instead of, you know, the gentle prayer, I was like, with all the earnestness... I ple- Lord, please help her feel Phil, but please comfort him. Please give him strength. I'm in mean, a lot more earnestness. I'm holding on to him. He goes, Pastor Keys." I'm down here. That was more lame than the first one. Come on. Pray for me. And I'm trying to figure out, what does he want? So I said, okay, well, we're almost at a hospital. You better tell me now. What do you want? He said, you never asked God to heal me. And I thought, you know, he's right. I didn't. Because I was afraid, theologically, I'd had no way out of that mess when they amputated his leg. So I said, okay. Maybe I don't have faith, but I know Ron does. So I pray, dear Lord, I know you're going to heal. You're going to heal Ron. He's, he's convinced of it. I know that you're a great God. Whatever you have in store for Ron's life, tonight he's going to find out. Right then, we get to the hospital. They, roll. they had a gurney ready. They roll out. We put him on the stretcher. He goes inside. Me and Don sit there in the waiting room. Now, while we were sitting there, I was there, Lord. I don't know why I prayed that. I might have to give him a long Bible study on, you know, how God doesn't always heal. And I was really worried, really, really worried. And then guy came out, and he says, oh, which one of you guys are his father? And I have to tell you something. Ron was a lot darker than me and Don. And they asked us which one was his father, and I said, well, I'll claim that for now. You know, I said, we're their guardians. He's at a boarding academy. And, oh, okay, all right, um. Well, let me tell you something. Uh, I want to show you something. Would you guys step in the other room? We walk in this examination room. He takes the x-ray of Ron's leg and he puts it up. You remember those little things that had the light in? Turned the light on and he said, do you guys know anything about bones? And Don said, well, dogs like them. I said, that's the dumbest thing. You know, okay, yeah, they do. And so he goes, all right, wise guy. Be quiet! I want to show you something. This is the bone. This is the area where. What, what kind of truck was it? The random over? was it a Tonka? No, this was an F-250, big truck. There were 30 kids sitting in the truck bed. He goes, "This is impossible. There is absolutely nothing wrong with this kid's leg." We said that could only be God. Only now. Why doesn't that happen all the time? I can't explain it. I told you that last night, but I will tell you this. It was important for Ron at that moment to know that God was still in the healing business. Amen? Don't be afraid to have anointings when you're in your church. I remember I had a fellow um, church member. I baptized him in one of my evangelistic meetings. His name was Byron. Byron came and he, he said, Pastor, he said, I lied to you when I was baptized. You told me that if I needed to quit smoking. Well, I tried. I, I didn't really quit. And I've really been struggling with it. It's a habit. I I just can't give up. I looked at him and I said, yeah, you can. We'll do the five-minute plan. He goes, well, no, no, no. He said, I want you to anoint me. We anointed him. This is a a two-pack-a-day smoker. He quit like that. I want to tell you, don't be afraid of using the method of anointing. Now, the last, the fifth reason why this is still the greatest place to be is this one. Mark chapter 2, verse 5 says... When Jesus saw their what? Faith. He said, son, your sins are forgiven you. When he saw their faith, it didn't say when he saw his faith. Whose faith was he talking about? The four guys that carried him to the feet of Jesus. Do we have and live the kind of life that's filled with faith that we're bringing people to Jesus? That's the life of faith, amen? Amen. Now, I have to tell you, I've seen some incredible things in my life. I love the passage in Luke chapter 18, verse 8. It says, when Jesus comes back again, when the Son of Man comes back, will he find, what's the question? Will he find faith on this earth? What's he looking for? He's looking for faith. He's looking for people that live their life in faith. i share with you a story. I was about 12, 13 years old, running around the streets of Jersey City, New Jersey, and we're just running around one day, and we come across this series of garage roofs. Now, in, in the city, most of you know, in the big cities, it's very difficult to find parking. You have garages that you, you know, you'll pay a certain amount of money to park your car for a month or maybe lease it for a year. The garages sometimes are nowhere close to where the apartment or house is. And sure enough, we saw a series of these garage roofs, about 20 of them. And we looked up there and said, wow, that's pretty cool. Wouldn't it be fun if we could get up on those roofs and jump from roof to roof to roof? You know, that's what city kids think, you know. We have a dysfunction with our brains. And so we think, okay, let's get up there. We walk on The very last roof, or you could say the first roof, had a fence connected to it. A tall fence on the side said, there we go. We climb up the fence and we all shimmy up onto the roof and there's about 10 of us and we're running around playing a game we called Rooftop Tag. Now, I don't recommend this at home. By the way, this is not for the, for the viewing audience. Don't try this at home. We're up there playing tag and just having a good time and then one of the officers of our neighborhood, someone who's walking a beat, comes by and yells, what are you kids doing up on that roof? We look down and we see... It's Officer O'Hara. Now, I don't know why, but all the Italians became mobsters. All the Irish became cops. I don't know. Is there like a feud between Ireland and, you know? But anyway, he was a cop, and most of them were cops. And sure enough, he looks up there, boys, I know where you live. I'm going to lock you up if you don't get off that roof. And one of the kids, one of those smart New Jersey wise guys says, we dare to come up and get her. I thought, what a nutcase. If that big old Irish guy gets up here, he kill us. So we were thinking, we don't have anything to throw at him. We don't, what, how are we going to keep him down? He finds the same fence, and he starts climbing up the fence. He gets to the roof, and I think, if he could do one pull-up with that massive body, he'd kill us all with one finger. And sure enough, he pulls himself up to the roof, and we're looking, now what do we do? And then we all looked at, who's the moron that, that dared him? So we're about to throw him to Officer O'Hara, and we said, wait a second, let's go our way. So we start running, and the roofs were probably eh, maybe five feet apart. Easy jump, but when you're up 20 feet, it looks high. So we jump from roof to roof to roof to roof to roof to roof. We get to the last roof then we look down. There's no offense. We're either going to have to jump or we're going to get eaten alive by this cop. We look back and he's stepping across. <laughs> he's not even jumping. And we said, okay, this is going to hurt, but Let's jump. And just about every one of us jumped at the same time. We kind of piled into each other. And we start running and we hear from the roof, help, help. We look back and little Jimmy Freeman's up on the roof. We called them tiny, a little tiny kid. Jimmy, get off the roof! The cop's gonna get you! I can't do it! I can't! Just leave me here! I'll just die! He's uh, like, Jimmy, jump! He wasn't moving. He was frozen to the side of that roof. We're like, you gotta do it! And then one of the kids are in our little gang, rebel says, "Leave him there, Eddie. Let's go!" So we start to run. And then someone else in the gang says, "If we leave him there, he'll rat us all out." Okay, let's get back. So we run back. Jimmy, jump, we'll catch you. I don't trust you. Come on, Jimmy's right behind you. And all of this happened within a space of about 30 seconds. So we made one of those, and I was not raised in Adventist, but we learned how to do acro. We made one of those pyramids, and someone got up there, and we tried to pull him off the roof, and he wouldn't go. And then finally, someone grabbed him by hand. Would you go if I hold your hand? And Jimmy said, okay. And he climbed down the pyramid, and we ran away as Officer O'Hara thought he had us all. Got to the edge of the room. Come back, you kids. I'll get you next time. It was like a bad movie. (laughs) And we ran away. And I thought about that. And I still think about it today. How many people, neighbors, friends, coworkers, are just looking for someone to have enough faith to take them by the hand and say, Hey, I've been over that road before. I can help you. You've had a disease that maybe they're struggling with. Or maybe you've gone through a divorce. Or you've had a a death in your life that has been tragic and traumatic and they're going through something similar. They're just looking for someone to say, Will you go with me? Can I take your hand? We'll go together. Don't be afraid to reach out in faith and help these people who are looking for Christ. The church indeed has one foundation. The first thing the church should be known for is Jesus. It should be known as a church that preaches the Word of God. It should be known as a place where people can find salvation easily, where healing takes place, but it should also be a place where great faith takes place. I'm going to close with a story. Some of you have heard this. Years ago, when the Bosnia-Herzegovina Civil War was going on, all the trouble that was taking place over there, well, NATO had their forces over there. And uh, they, were, they, they would send up jets from time to time to check things out. And they send up a pilot, Commander Scott O'Grady. I don't know if you remember that name. But he was flying along, and his plane got shot down out of the sky. He ejected, landed behind enemy lines. They even made a movie called Behind It, which loosely, loosely tells that story. But this man was behind enemy lines. Living off of bugs and berries and things, trying to find his way back to help. While he was trying to find his way back to help, the commander of the fleet out in the the American fleet out in the ocean was saying, "Hey, we got to do something for this guy. We can't leave him behind enemy lines. He's going to get killed. Someone's going to kill him." While he's fighting for his life against these these forces that could care less about him. They were trying to say, hey, we can't do it. It's an international problem. You know, if we go in there, we could cause a war. Well, they're already at war, the commander said. We've got to do something for this guy. He needs help. So they sent in a rescue team. You to think about this. Eighty-four men were involved in that rescue. Eighty-four people to save one. Where is the logic in that? You know what? All 84 were volunteers. All 84 said, we'll do it. You need someone to save him? Pick me, just like Isaiah. Here I am, send me, I'll do it. I'll go in and save this guy's life. Their model, kind of like the Coast Guard, we have to go out. We don't necessarily have to come back, but we're going to go save this guy. Now, think about it. Willing to die to save their fellow men. Are we willing to give it everything we have to save our fellow men? Help them find safety, happiness, joy in Jesus. Sometimes, compared to some of the organizations that do life-saving, we look puny as a church, and we shouldn't, because our church is founded on the life-saver Himself. Amen? I want to close with a text. You have your Bible. Read along with me. This comes from... It's the second John 3.16. So it comes from the first letter of John, chapter 3, verse 16. I always tell my kids there are two John three sixteen for God so loved the world, but this one, this one has the second part of it, our response to it. First John, chapter 3, verse 16, says this, By this we know love, because He laid down His life for us. Sounds like the first John 3.16. But then it goes on to say, And we also ought to lay down our lives For the brethren. Amen? Should we be helping others? Should we be exercising faith, tearing off the roof to get people to Jesus? I hope so. If we'll do that, God will continue to bless us. Let's stand together as we pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, tonight we want to thank you first and foremost that Jesus is the reason for this church. Lord, we want to praise You for sending Your Son to be our Savior, for dying on the cross for us, for giving us eternal life and salvation in in Him, our Savior. Lord, for giving us an example of how we should live our lives through Jesus. And Jesus was tireless on missions of mercy and and missions to share the gospel with the world that He lived in. And He wants us to do that today. I pray that You would bless each one of us, that we might just be a reflection of the glory of God of the light of Jesus. Bless us tonight. Help us on this beautiful Sabbath day out here in nature to experience You afresh and also to say in our own hearts, Lord, we want to serve You forever. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.